Today's study takes us to Revelation chapter 20. And before we look at the chapter, let me make a couple comments. First, I hope that we've seen in the book of Revelation that there's a great imperative to the church, to Christians. Um, John is exhorting his people, exhorting his readers, that we are to, to carry forth the light of Christ, to shine and to be a witness to the nations, that we might suffer indeed for doing so, that we have to be careful about being uh, wed to Babylon and, and prosperity and materialism. and it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful narrative. But so often when we get studying the book of Revelation, we get intrigued by all the complexity of the, of the imagery and the visions and, and what does it mean for this, what does it mean for this. And many people get captivated by predicting the end times and predict, predicting when all this is going to happen. And when they do all that, they miss the richness and the beauty of the story as well as the significance of its message for God's people today. Now, chapter 20, and I say that because chapter 20 in the book of Revelation might be one of the most disputed passages in all of Scripture. It describes, and especially verses 4 through 6, a, a millennium, a, a thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, and the question is, well, what does this millennium mean? Uh, what is this thousand-year reign of Christ? One of the difficulties in determining what the millennium is all about is the fact that we have nowhere else in the Scriptures, especially in the New Testament, that describes some thousand-year millennial reign. So we have to go to the, this passage or that passage and kind of stitch some things that we think may or may not be related together uh, to discern exactly what the millennium is all about. And because of that, we simply need to be careful. We need to be careful about reading too much into the text and going beyond what it actually it says. Revelation 20 verse 1 says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But there will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, as I mentioned in our last podcast, the order of events in Revelation 19-22 parallels greatly the order of events from Ezekiel 37-48. In Ezekiel 37-48 and Revelation 19-22, both passages use references to Gog and Magog, as we'll see in a few minutes. In both passages, fire comes down from heaven and destroys Gog and his followers. In both John and Ezekiel, the prophets are taken to a high place where they're shown a vision of a new city. Both see a figure with a measuring rod, and, and in both cases, a city or a temple that's a square with gates and walls and foundations and three gates on each side. And we'll look at this even more carefully when we get to Revelation 21, uh, verses 1 to 22, 5. The passage here in Revelation 20 then begins with Satan being uh, captured and thrown into the abyss and shut and sealed uh, over him so that he couldn't deceive the nations any longer. Satan's bound for a thousand years, and he must, after the thousand years are completed, he'll be released for a short time. Verse 7, which we'll read in a little bit, re refers to the, the releasing of Satan from this imprisonment for a thousand years. And it's, of course, a very difficult, complex passage. One of the questions that we have to ask is, of course, is this a complete or just a partial binding of Satan? Uh, those who believe it's a total binding of Satan are usually what's called premillennialists or postmillennialists. Those two words simply mean this. Uh, when does the second coming happen in regards to the millennium? 
Premillennialism believes that the second coming happens before the millennium. Jesus returns, he comes back to the earth physically, and establishes a literal physical kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. Postmillennialism says that the second coming happens after the millennium. That is, there's a thousand years of peace and where the devil is no longer uh, active and roaming the earth. At the end of that thousand years, Jesus Christ returns and establishes God's eternal kingdom. Now, those both emphasize the uh, sealing of Satan into the abyss, that Satan's totally bound because he's thrown into the abyss. And the abyss might be another, uh, another word for hell or a synonym for hell. We notice that the abyss earlier in the book of Revelation uh, in chapter 9, described, uh, ha- had smoke coming up out of the abyss. And so it seems to symbolize the, the fire that's often connoted or associated with, with hell itself. Now, those who believe that the binding of Satan is only a partial binding are often termed amillennialists. When we say that there's only a partial binding, the amillennialist means that Satan is not actually thrown into, into hell where he no longer has any influence. Uh, but the idea of the partial binding is that Satan's bound only in the sense that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. Verse 3 says uh, that he was thrown into the abyss and shut and sealed over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer. This would be an indication, according to the Amelonist view, that Satan's not totally, completely bound or restricted from having any activity on the earth, but that he's only bound in the sense that the nations are no longer deceived. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I think an important background uh, that may or may not help us understand the binding of Satan in the book of Revelation chapter 20 is referred to in Mark chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 12. There, Jesus refers to the fact that he's had to enter into Satan's home and bind the strong man. Now, if we take this reference in Mark 3 in the binding of Satan and the binding of the strong man and, and use it as a parallel to Revelation chapter 20, perhaps we might understand the fact that the binding of Satan has already begun. Satan is being bound so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. In my opinion, this fits well with the rest of the New Testament. After all, a key element of the New Testament is the fact that not only has Christ come, but that the nations are being included. The gospel is going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But those at the ends of the earth can't receive the gospel if they've been blinded by the devil. So the binding of, the, of Satan, I believe, is an indication that Satan is no longer able to deceive the nations any longer. As a result, the gospel can go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Thus, I would say, regardless of your view of the millennium, uh, it's important, in my opinion, to emphasize the present reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom has already come, and part of that coming includes the fact that Satan is no longer able to deceive the nations any longer. As a result, the witness of God's people can be effective and can be proclaimed throughout the entirety of the earth. Revelation 20 verse 6 says that those who have a part in the first resurrection are blessed and holy. Uh, Over them the second death has no power. They'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. I would suggest that that reigning with Christ is already a present reality. After all, we saw in the very, very beginning of the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, verse 6, that he has made us to be a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. Remember in chapter 1, verse 9, John says, I'm, I'm your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. The kingdom of God is a present reality. That present reality includes Christ's reign and Christ's rule uh, over the earth. And as a result of that, the nations are no longer subject to Satan's deception. And as a result, the effectiveness of our witness is made possible. Remember Revelation chapter nine verses chapter five verses nine and ten says, "Worthy are you to take the book because and to break its seals because you were slain, and you purchased for God with blood with your blood men from every single every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth." That reigning of God's people is a present reality.
Now, I know some may wish to suggest that there's a future reign of Christ, that when he comes back on the earth, he'll, he'll establish a physical reign on the earth for a thousand years, and perhaps that's the case. But I think it's important that we still stress the present reigning of Christ and the present reigning of God's people, and the present role of God's people, then, in being witnesses to the nations. Now, in addition, it says that those who come to life with Christ are given thrones. Uh, verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. Uh, the thrones reminds us of the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, I saw thrones. And in Daniel chapter 7, uh, chapter seven verse 9, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, it says, I saw books, and, and books were open, which is going to parallel Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. Daniel 7, then, depicts the destruction of the beast and the transferring of the kingdom of God to the saints. I think that parallels Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Revelation 19 describes the destruction of the beast, as does Daniel 7, and Revelation 20 refers to the transferring of the, uh, of the kingdom to the saints. Chapter 20, verse 7 then continues. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations who are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead that were in them, that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Uh, Satan's let loose for a short time. He's going to gather an army to battle against Christ and to gather them together for the war. Uh, that war, of course, uh, is, I believe, the same war described in chapter 16 and in chapter 19. It's a war of Satan against God's people. Gog and Magog are those who will gather together at the Battle of Armageddon. They are symbolic forces, I believe, a pit of evil pitted against God, uh, whom God will then destroy. It says in verse 9 that they came up on the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. I believe that the best way to understand the fact of the, the beloved city is that the beloved city is the camp of the saints. The NIV actually translates it that they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. The city he loves is the camp of God's people. Note the equation of the people of God with the city. That's going to happen, of course, in chapter 21, uh, very emphatically. He says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. What's surprising about that is that verse 8 says, Come and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So John's told in verse 9 that he's going to see the bride, the wife of the Lamb, but in verse 10, he's shown the holy city. The holy city is the bride. The people are the city, and the people are the temple. The city of Jerusalem is not a physical location. It's a reference to God's beloved people. Note that this is not much of a battle, by the way. After all, it says, the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Ironically, fire coming down out of heaven was one of the signs of the beast that he used to induce false worship. Revelation chapter 20, then verses 11 through 15, describes the great white throne judgment. Uh, God, sitting on a throne, is throughout the book of Revelation. Interestingly, in the, book, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the one who is the judge. But here it seems to be a reference to the Father. The throne is white, symbolizing God's holiness. And the dead were judged. 
Now, there's sometimes a, a little bit of a debate whether or not this judgment refers to all the righteous and of the unrighteous, or whether it's just simply a reference to the judgment of the, of the unrighteous. It says that books were open, and those who were judged were judged according to what was written in the books. In Judaism, there's a tradition that there are two different books that record the deeds of the righteous and the deeds of the unrighteous. Nonetheless, they're judged according to their deeds. The end result is that the sea and death and Hades, uh, which refers to the demonic realm, hostile to God, were all thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death.